Chapter 10 Between the Planets From a distance, our solar system looks empty. If you enclosed it within a sphere, one large enough to contain the orbit of Neptune, the outermost planet, then the volume occupied by the Sun, all the planets, and their moons would take up a little more than one trillionth the enclosed space. But it's not empty. The space between the planets contains all manner of chunky rocks, pebbles, ice balls, dust, streams of charged particles, and far-flung probes. The space is also permeated by monstrous gravitational and magnetic fields. Interplanetary space is so not empty that Earth, during its 30-kilometer-per-second orbital journey, plows through hundreds of tons of meteors per day most of them no larger than a grain of sand. Nearly all of them burn in Earth's upper atmosphere, slamming into the air with so much energy that the debris vaporizes on contact. Our frail species evolved under this protective blanket. Larger golf ball-sized meteors heat fast but unevenly and often shatter into many smaller pieces before they vaporize. Still larger meteors singe their surface, but otherwise make it all the way to the ground intact. You'd think that by now, after 4.6 billion trips around the sun, Earth would have vacuumed up all possible debris in its orbital path. But things were once much worse. For a half billion years after the formation of the sun and its planets, so much junk rained down on Earth that heat from the persistent energy of impacts rendered Earth's atmosphere hot and our crust molten. One substantial hunk of junk led to the formation of the moon. The unexpected scarcity of iron and other high-mass elements in the moon, derived from lunar samples returned by Apollo astronauts, indicates that the moon most likely burst forth from Earth's iron-poor crust and mantle after a glancing collision with a wayward Mars-sized protoplanet. The orbiting debris from this encounter coalesced to form our lovely low-density satellite. Apart from this newsworthy event, the period of heavy bombardment that Earth endured during its infancy was not unique among the planets and other large bodies of the solar system. They each sustained similar damage, with the airless, erosionless surfaces of the Moon and Mercury preserving much of the cratered record from this period. Not only is the solar system scarred by the flotsam of its formation, but nearby interplanetary space also contains rocks of all sizes that would jettison from Mars, the Moon, and Earth by the ground's recoil from high-speed impacts. Computer studies of meteor strikes demonstrate conclusively that surface rocks near impact zones can get thrust upward with enough speed to escape the body's gravitational tether. At the rate we are discovering meteorites on Earth, whose origin is Mars, we conclude that about a thousand tons of Martian rocks rain down on Earth each year. Perhaps the same amount reaches Earth from the Moon. In retrospect, we didn't have to go to the Moon to retrieve Moon rocks. Plenty come to us, although they were not of our choosing, and we didn't yet know it during the Apollo program. Most of the solar system's asteroids live and work in the main asteroid belt, a roughly flat zone between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter. By tradition, the discoverers get to name their asteroids whatever they like, often drawn by artists as a region of cluttered, meandering rocks in the plane of the solar system, the asteroid belt's total mass is less than 5% that of the Moon, which is itself barely more than 1% of Earth's mass. Sounds insignificant, but accumulated perturbations of their orbits continually create a deadly subset, perhaps a few thousand, whose eccentric paths intersect Earth's orbit. A simple calculation reveals that most of them will hit Earth within a hundred million years. The ones larger than about a kilometer across will collide with enough energy to destabilize Earth's ecosystem and put most of Earth's land species at risk of extinction. That would be bad. Asteroids are not the only space objects that pose a risk to life on Earth. The Kuiper Belt is a comet-strewn swath of circular real estate that begins just beyond the orbit of Neptune, includes Pluto, 
and extends perhaps as far again from Neptune as Neptune is from the Sun. The Dutch-born American astronomer Gerard Kuiper advanced the idea that in the cold depths of space beyond the orbit of Neptune, there reside frozen leftovers from the formation of the solar system. Without a massive planet upon which to fall, most of these comets will orbit the Sun for billions of years. As is true for the asteroid belt, some objects of the Kuiper belt travel on eccentric paths that cross the orbits of other planets. Pluto and its ensemble of siblings called Plutinos cross Neptune's path around the Sun. Other Kuiper belt objects plunge all the way down to the inner solar system, crossing planetary orbits with abandon. This subset includes Halley, the most famous comet of them all. Far beyond the Kuiper belt, extending halfway to the nearest stars, lives a spherical reservoir of comets called the Oort cloud, named for Jan Oort, the Dutch astrophysicist who first deduced its existence. This zone is responsible for the long-period comets, those with orbital periods far longer than a human lifetime. Unlike Kuiper belt comets, Oort cloud comets can rain down on the inner solar system from any angle and from any direction. The two brightest of the 1990s, comets Hale-Bopp and Hyakutake, were both from the Oort cloud and are not coming back anytime soon. If we had eyes that could see magnetic fields, Jupiter would look ten times larger than the full moon in the sky. Spacecraft that visit Jupiter must be designed to remain unaffected by this powerful force. As the English physicist Michael Faraday demonstrated in the 1800s, if you pass a wire across a magnetic field, you generate a voltage difference along the wire's length. For this reason, fast-moving metal space probes will have electrical currents induced within them. Meanwhile, these currents generate magnetic fields of their own that interact with the ambient magnetic field in ways that retard the space probe's motion. Last I had kept count, there were 56 moons among the planets in the solar system. Then I woke up one morning to learn that another dozen had been discovered around Saturn. After that incident, I decided to no longer keep track. All I care about now is whether any of them would be fun places to visit or to study. By some measures, the solar system's moons are more fascinating than the planets they orbit. Earth's moon is about one-four-hundredth the diameter of the sun, but it's also one-four-hundredth as far from us, making the sun and the moon the same size on the sky, a coincidence not shared by any other planet-moon combination in the solar system, allowing for uniquely photogenic total solar eclipses. Earth also has tidally locked the moon, leaving it with identical periods of rotation on its axis and revolution around Earth. Wherever and whenever this happens, the locked moon shows only one face to its host planet. Jupiter's system of moons is replete with oddballs. Io, Jupiter's closest moon, is tidally locked and structurally stressed by interactions with Jupiter and with other moons, pumping enough heat into the little orb to render molten its interior rocks. Io is the most volcanically active place in the solar system. Jupiter's moon Europa has enough H2O that its heating mechanism, the same one at work on Io, has melted the subsurface ice, leaving a warmed ocean below. If ever there was a next best place to look for life, it's here. An artist co-worker of mine once asked whether alien life forms from Europa would be called Europeans. The absence of any other plausible answer forced me to say yes. Pluto's largest moon, Charon, is so big and close to Pluto that Pluto and Charon have each tidally locked the other. Their rotation periods and their periods of revolution are identical. We call this a double tidal lock which sounds like a yet-to-be-invented wrestling hold. By convention, moons are named for Greek personalities in the life of the Greek counterpart to the Roman god after whom the planet itself was named. The classical gods led complicated social lives, so there's no shortage of characters from which to draw. The lone exception to this rule 
applies to the moons of Uranus, which are named for assorted protagonists in British lit. William Herschel was the first person to discover a planet beyond those easily visible to the naked eye, and he was ready to name it after the king, under whom he faithfully served. Had Herschel succeeded, the planet list would read Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, and George. Fortunately, clearer heads prevailed, and the classical name Uranus was adopted some years later. But his original suggestion to name the moons after characters in William Shakespeare's plays and Alexander Pope's poems remains the tradition to this day. Among its 27 moons, we find Ariel, Cordelia, Desdemona, Juliet, Ophelia, Portia, Puck, Umbriel, and Miranda. The sun loses material from its surface at a rate of more than a million tons per second. We call this the solar wind, which takes the form of high-energy charged particles. Traveling up to a thousand miles per second, these particles stream through space and are deflected by planetary magnetic fields. The particles spiral down toward the north and south magnetic poles, forcing collisions with gas molecules and leaving the atmosphere aglow with colorful aurora. The Hubble Space Telescope has spotted aurora near the poles of both Saturn and Jupiter, and on Earth, the aurora borealis and australis, the northern and southern lights, serve as intermittent reminders of how nice it is to have a protective atmosphere. Earth's atmosphere is commonly described as extending dozens of miles above Earth's surface. Satellites in low Earth orbit typically travel between 100 and 400 miles up, completing an orbit in about 90 minutes. While you can't breathe at those altitudes, some atmospheric molecules remain, enough to slowly drain orbital energy from unsuspecting satellites. To combat this drag, satellites in low orbit require intermittent boosts, lest they fall back to Earth and burn up in the atmosphere. An alternative way to define the edge of our atmosphere is to ask where its density of gas molecules equals the density of gas molecules in interplanetary space. Under that definition, Earth's atmosphere extends thousands of miles. Orbiting high above this level, 23,000 miles up, one-tenth of the distance to the moon, are the communication satellites. At this special altitude, Earth's atmosphere is not only irrelevant, but the speed of the satellite is low enough for it to require a full day to complete one revolution around Earth. With an orbit precisely matching the rotation rate of Earth, these satellites appear to hover, which makes them ideal for relaying signals from one part of Earth's surface to another. Newton's laws specifically state that while the gravity of a planet gets weaker and weaker the farther from it you travel, there is no distance where the force of gravity reaches zero. The planet Jupiter, with its mighty gravitational field, bats out of harm's way many comets that would otherwise wreak havoc on the inner solar system. Jupiter acts as a gravitational shield for Earth, a burly big brother, allowing long hundred-million-year stretches of relative peace and quiet on Earth. Without Jupiter's protection, complex life would have a hard time becoming interestingly complex always living at risk of extinction from a devastating impact. We have exploited the gravitational fields of planets for nearly every probe launched into space. The Cassini probe, for example, which visited Saturn, was gravitationally assisted twice by Venus, once by Earth on a return flyby, and once by Jupiter. Like a multi-cushion billiard shot, trajectories from one planet to another are common, our tiny probes would not otherwise have enough speed and energy from our rockets to reach their destination. I am now accountable for some of the solar system's interplanetary debris. In November 2000, the main belt asteroid 1994 KA, discovered by David Levy and Carolyn Shoemaker, was named 13123 Tyson in my honor. While I enjoyed the distinction, there's no particular reason to get big-headed about it, Plenty of asteroids have familiar names, such as Jody, Harriet, and Thomas. There are even asteroids out there named Merlin, James Bond, and Santa. 
Now, in the hundreds of thousands, the asteroid count might soon challenge our capacity to name them. Whether or not that day arrives, I take comfort knowing that my chunk of cosmic debris is not alone as it litters the space between the planets, being joined by a long list of other chunks named for real and fictional people. I'm also glad that, at the moment, my asteroid is not headed towards Earth. Chapter 11 Exoplanet Earth Whether you prefer to sprint, swim, walk, or crawl from one place to another on Earth, you can enjoy close-up views of our planet's unlimited supply of things to notice. You might see a vein of pink limestone on the wall of a canyon, a ladybug eating an aphid on the stem of a rose, a clamshell poking out from the sand. All you have to do is look. From the window of an ascending jetliner, those surface details rapidly disappear. No aphid appetizers, no curious clams. Reach cruising altitude around seven miles up, and identifying major roadways becomes a challenge. Detail continues to vanish as you rise into space. From the window of the International Space Station, which orbits about 250 miles up, you might find Paris, London, New York, and Los Angeles in the daytime, but only because you learned where they are in geography class. At night, their sprawling cityscapes present an obvious glow. By day, contrary to common wisdom, you probably won't see the Great Pyramids at Giza, and you certainly won't see the Great Wall of China. Their obscurity is partly the result of having been made from the soil and stone of the surrounding landscape. And although the Great Wall is thousands of miles long, it's only about 20 feet wide, much narrower than the U.S. interstate highways you can barely see from a transcontinental jet. From orbit with the unaided eye, you would have seen smoke plumes rising from the oil field fires in Kuwait at the end of the first Persian Gulf War in 1991, and smoke from the burning World Trade Center towers in New York City on September 11, 2001. You will also notice the green-brown boundaries between swaths of irrigated and arid land. Beyond that short list, there's not much else made by humans that's identifiable from hundreds of miles up in the sky. You can see plenty of natural scenery, though, including hurricanes in the Gulf of Mexico, ice flows in the North Atlantic, and volcanic eruptions wherever they occur. From the moon, a quarter million miles away, New York... Paris, and the rest of Earth's urban glitter doesn't even show up as a twinkle. But from your lunar vantage, you can still watch major weather fronts move across the planet. From Mars, at its closest, some 35 million miles away, massive snow-capped mountain chains and the edges of Earth's continents would be visible through a large backyard telescope. Travel out to Neptune, 3 billion miles away, just down the block on a cosmic scale, and the sun itself becomes a thousand times dimmer, now occupying a thousandth the area on the daytime sky that it occupies when seen from Earth. And what of Earth itself? It's a speck, no brighter than a dim star, all but lost in the glare of the sun. A celebrated photograph taken in 1990 from just beyond Neptune's orbit by the Voyager 1 spacecraft shows just how underwhelming Earth looks from deep space. A pale blue dot, as the American astrophysicist Carl Sagan called it. And that's generous. Without the help of a caption, you might not even know it's there. What would happen if some big-brained aliens from the great beyond scanned the skies with their naturally superb visual organs, further aided by alien state-of-the-art optical accessories? What visible features of planet Earth might they detect? Blueness would be first and foremost. Water covers more than two-thirds of Earth's surface. The Pacific Ocean alone spans nearly an entire side of the planet. Any beings with enough equipment and expertise to detect our planet's color would surely infer the presence of water, the third most abundant molecule in the universe. If the resolution of their equipment were high enough, the aliens would see more than just a pale blue dot. They would see intricate coastlines, too, strongly suggesting that the water is liquid. 
And smart aliens would surely know that if a planet has liquid water, then the planet's temperature and atmospheric pressure fall within a well-determined range. Earth's distinctive polar ice caps, which grow and shrink from the seasonal temperature variations, could also be seen using visible light. So could our planet's 24-hour rotation, because recognizable landmasses rotate into view at predictable intervals of time. The aliens would also see major weather systems come and go. With careful study, they could readily distinguish features related to clouds in the atmosphere from features related to the surface of Earth itself. Time for a reality check. The nearest exoplanet, the nearest planet in orbit around a star that is not the Sun, can be found in our neighbor star system, Alpha Centauri, about four light years from us and visible mostly from our southern hemisphere. Most of the cataloged exoplanets lie from dozens up to hundreds of light years away. Earth's brightness is less than one billionth that of the Sun, and our planet's proximity to the Sun would make it extremely hard for anybody to see Earth directly with a visible light telescope. It's like trying to detect the light of a firefly in the vicinity of a Hollywood searchlight. So if aliens have found us, they are likely looking in wavelengths other than visible light, like infrared, where our brightness relative to the sun is a bit better than invisible light. Or else their engineers are adapting some other strategy altogether. Maybe they're doing what some of our own planet hunters typically do, monitoring stars to see if they jiggle at regular intervals. A star's periodic jiggle betrays the existence of an orbiting planet that may be too dim to see directly. Contrary to what most people suppose, a planet does not orbit its host star. Instead, both the planet and its host star revolve around their common center of mass. The more massive the planet, the larger the star's response must be, and the more measurable the jiggle gets when you analyze the star's light. Unfortunately for planet-hunting aliens, Earth is puny, so the sun barely budges, which would further challenge alien engineers. NASA's Kepler telescope, designed and tuned to discover Earth-like planets around sun-like stars, invoked yet another method of detection, mightily adding to the exoplanet catalog. Kepler searched for stars whose total brightness dropped slightly and at regular intervals. In these cases, Kepler's line of sight is just right to see a star get dimmer by a tiny fraction due to one of its own planets crossing directly in front of the host star. With this method, you can't see the planet itself. You can't even see any features on the star's surface. Kepler simply tracked changes in a star's total light, but added thousands of exoplanets to the catalog, including hundreds of multi-planet star systems. From these data, you also learn the size of the exoplanet, its orbital period, and its orbital distance from the host star. You can always make an educated inference on the planet's mass. If you're wondering, when Earth passes in front of the Sun, which is always happening for some line of sight in the galaxy, we block one ten-thousandth of the Sun's surface, thereby briefly dimming the Sun's total light by one ten-thousandth of its normal brightness. Fine as it goes. They'll discover that Earth exists, but learn nothing about happenings on Earth's surface. Radio waves and microwaves might work. Maybe our eavesdropping aliens have something like the 500-meter radio telescope in the Guizhou province of China. If they do, and if they tune to the right frequencies, they'll certainly notice Earth, or rather, they'll notice our modern civilization as one of the most luminous sources in the sky. Consider everything we've got that generates radio waves and microwaves, not only traditional radio itself, but also broadcast television, mobile phones, microwave ovens, garage door openers, car door unlockers, commercial radar, military radar, and communication satellites. We're ablaze in long-frequency waves, spectacular evidence that something unusual is going on here, because in their natural state, Small, rocky planets emit hardly any radio waves at all. So if those alien eavesdroppers turn their own version of a radio telescope in our direction, they might infer that our planet hosts technology. One complication, though, other interpretations are possible. 
maybe they wouldn't be able to distinguish Earth signals from those of the larger planets in our solar system, all of which are sizable sources of radio waves, especially Jupiter. Maybe they think we were a new kind of odd, radio-intensive planet. Maybe they wouldn't be able to distinguish Earth's radio emissions from those of the Sun, forcing them to conclude that the Sun is a new kind of odd, radio-intensive star. Astrophysicists right here on Earth, at the University of Cambridge in England, were similarly stumped back in 1967. While surveying the skies with a radio telescope for any source of strong radio waves, Anthony Hewish and his team discovered something extremely odd, an object pulsing at precise repeating intervals of slightly more than a second. Jocelyn Bell, a graduate student of Hewish's at the time, was the first to notice it. Soon, Bell's colleagues established that the pulses came from a great distance. The thought that the signal was technological, another culture beaming evidence of its activities across space, was irresistible. As Bell recounts, we had no proof that it was an entirely natural radio emission. Here was I trying to get a Ph.D. out of a new technique, and some silly lot of little green men had to choose my aerial and my frequency to communicate with us. Within a few days, however, she discovered other repeating signals coming from other places in our Milky Way galaxy. Bell and her associates realized they'd discovered a new class of cosmic object, a star made entirely of neutrons that pulses with radio waves for every rotation it executes. Hewish and Bell sensibly named them pulsars. Turns out, intercepting radio waves isn't the only way to be Snoopy. There's also cosmochemistry. The chemical analysis of planetary atmospheres has become a lively field of modern astrophysics. As you might guess, cosmochemistry depends on spectroscopy, the analysis of light by means of a spectrometer. By exploiting the tools and tactics of spectroscopists, cosmochemists can infer the presence of life on an exoplanet regardless of whether that life has sentience, intelligence, or technology. The method works because every element, every molecule, no matter where it exists in the universe, absorbs, emits, reflects, and scatters light in a unique way. And, as already discussed, pass that light through a spectrometer, and you'll find features that can rightly be called chemical fingerprints. The most visible fingerprints are made by the chemicals most excited by the pressure and temperature of their environment. Planetary atmospheres are rich with such features. And if a planet is teeming with flora and fauna, its atmosphere will be rich with biomarkers, spectral evidence of life, whether biogenic, produced by any or all life forms, anthropogenic, produced by the widespread species Homo sapiens, or technogenic, produced only by technology, such rampant evidence will be hard to conceal. Unless they happen to be born with built-in spectroscopic sensors, our space-snooping aliens would need to build a spectrometer to read our fingerprints. But above all, Earth would have to cross in front of the sun or some other source, permitting light to pass through our atmosphere and continue on to the aliens. That way, the chemicals in Earth's atmosphere could interact with the light, leaving their marks for all to see. Some molecules, ammonia, carbon dioxide, water, show up abundantly in the universe, whether life is present or not. But other molecules thrive in the presence of life itself. Another readily detected biomarker is Earth's sustained level of the molecule methane, two-thirds of which is produced by human-related activities, such as fuel oil production, rice cultivation, sewage, and the burps and farts of domestic livestock. Natural sources, comprising the remaining third, include decomposing vegetation in wetlands and termite effluences. Meanwhile, in places where free oxygen is scarce, methane does not always require life to form. At this very moment, astrobiologists are arguing over the exact origin of trace methane on Mars and the copious quantities of methane on Saturn's moon Titan, where cows and termites we presume do not dwell. If the aliens track our nighttime side while we orbit our host star, they might notice a surge of sodium from our widespread use of sodium vapor lamps that switch on at dusk in urban and suburban municipalities. Most telling, however, would be all our free-floating oxygen, which constitutes a full fifth of our atmosphere. 
Oxygen, which, after hydrogen and helium, is the third most abundant element in the cosmos, is chemically active and bonds readily with atoms of hydrogen, carbon, nitrogen, silicon, sulfur, iron, and so on. It even bonds with itself. Thus, for oxygen to exist in a steady state, something must be liberating it as fast as it's being consumed. Here on Earth, the liberation is traceable to life. Photosynthesis, carried out by plants and many bacteria, creates free oxygen in the oceans and in the atmosphere. Free oxygen, in turn, enables the existence of oxygen-metabolizing life, including us and practically every other creature in the animal kingdom. We Earthlings already know the significance of our planet's distinctive chemical fingerprints, but distant aliens who come upon us will have to interpret their findings and test their assumptions. Must the periodic appearance of sodium be technogenic? Free oxygen is surely biogenic. How about methane? It, too, is chemically unstable. And yes, some of it is anthropogenic. But as we've seen, methane has non-living agents as well. If all the aliens decide that Earth's chemical features are sure evidence of life, maybe they'll wonder if the life is intelligent. Presumably the aliens communicate with one another. And perhaps they'll presume that other intelligent life forms communicate too. Maybe that's when they'll decide to eavesdrop on Earth with their radio telescopes to see what part of the electromagnetic spectrum its inhabitants have mastered. So, whether the aliens explore with chemistry or with radio waves, they might come to the same conclusion. A planet where there's advanced technology must be populated with intelligent life forms who may occupy themselves discovering how the universe works and how to apply its laws for personal or public gain. Looking more closely at Earth's atmospheric fingerprints, human biomarkers will also include sulfuric, carbonic, and nitric acids and other components of smog from the burning of fossil fuels. If the curious aliens happen to be socially, culturally, and technologically more advanced than we are, then they will surely interpret these biomarkers as convincing evidence for the absence of intelligent life on Earth. The first exoplanet was discovered in 1995, and as of this writing, the tally is rising through 3,000, most found in a small pocket of the Milky Way around the solar system. So there's plenty more where they came from. After all, our galaxy contains more than 100 billion stars, and the known universe harbors some 100 billion galaxies. Our search for life in the universe drives the search for exoplanets, some of which resemble Earth, not in detail, of course, but in overall properties. Latest estimates, extrapolating from the current catalogs, suggest as many as 40 billion Earth-like planets in the Milky Way alone. Those are the planets our descendants might want to visit someday, by choice, if not by necessity. Chapter 12. Reflections on the Cosmic Perspective Of all the sciences cultivated by mankind, astronomy is acknowledged to be, and undoubtedly is, the most sublime, the most interesting, and the most useful. For, by knowledge derived from this science, not only the bulk of the earth is discovered, but our very faculties are enlarged with the grandeur of the ideas it conveys, our minds exalted above their low, contracted prejudices. James Ferguson, 1757 Long before anyone knew that the universe had a beginning, before we knew that the nearest large galaxy lies two million light-years from Earth, before we knew how stars work or whether atoms exist, James Ferguson's enthusiastic introduction to his favorite science rang true. Yet his words, apart from their 18th-century flourish, could have been written yesterday. But who gets to think that way? Who gets to celebrate this cosmic view of life? Not the migrant farm worker, not the sweatshop worker, certainly not the homeless person rummaging through the trash for food. You need the luxury of time not spent on mere survival. You need to live in a nation whose government values the search to understand humanity's place in the universe. You need a society in which intellectual pursuit can take you to the frontiers of discovery 
and in which news of your discoveries can be routinely disseminated. By those measures, most citizens of industrialized nations do quite well. Yet the cosmic view comes with a hidden cost. When I travel thousands of miles to spend a few moments in the fast-moving shadow of the moon during a total solar eclipse, sometimes I lose sight of Earth. When I pause and reflect on our expanding universe, with its galaxies hurtling away from one another, embedded within the ever-stretching four-dimensional fabric of space and time, sometimes I forget that uncounted people walk this earth without food or shelter, and that children are disproportionately represented among them. When I pore over the data that establish the mysterious presence of dark matter and dark energy throughout the universe, sometimes I forget that every day, every 24-hour rotation of Earth, people kill and get killed in the name of someone else's conception of God, and that some people who do not kill in the name of God kill in the name of needs or wants of political dogma. When I track the orbits of asteroids, comets, and planets, each one a pirouetting dancer in a cosmic ballet, choreographed by the forces of gravity, sometimes I forget that too many people act in wanton disregard for the delicate interplay of Earth's atmosphere, oceans, and land, with consequences that our children and our children's children will witness and pay for with their health and well-being. And sometimes I forget that powerful people rarely do all they can to help those who cannot help themselves. I occasionally forget these things because however big the world is, in our hearts, our minds, and our outsized digital maps, the universe is even bigger. A depressing thought to some, but a liberating thought to me. Consider an adult who tends to the traumas of a child. Spilled milk, a broken toy, a scraped knee. As adults, we know that kids have no clue of what constitutes a genuine problem, because inexperience greatly limits their childhood perspective. Children do not yet know that the world doesn't revolve around them. As grown-ups, dare we admit to ourselves that we, too, have a collective immaturity of view? Dare we admit that our thoughts and behaviors spring from a belief that the world revolves around us? Apparently not. Yet evidence abounds. Part the curtains of society's racial, ethnic, religious, national, and cultural conflicts, and you find the human ego turning the knobs and pulling the levers. Now imagine a world in which everyone, but especially people with power and influence, holds an expanded view of our place in the cosmos. With that perspective, our problems would shrink or never arise at all, and we could celebrate our earthly differences while shunning the behavior of our predecessors who slaughtered one another because of them. Back in January 2000, the newly rebuilt Hayden Planetarium in New York City featured a space show titled Passport to the Universe, which took visitors on a virtual zoom from the planetarium out to the edge of the cosmos. En route, the audience viewed Earth, and then the solar system, then watched the hundred billion stars of the Milky Way galaxy shrink, in turn, to barely visible dots on the planetarium's dome. Within a month of opening day, I received a letter from an Ivy League professor of psychology, whose expertise was in things that make people feel insignificant. I never knew one could specialize in such a field. He wanted to administer a before-and-after questionnaire to visitors, assessing the depth of their depression after viewing the show. Passport to the Universe, he wrote, elicited the most dramatic feelings of smallness and insignificance he had ever experienced. How could that be? Every time I see the space show and others we've produced, I feel alive and spirited and connected. I also feel large, knowing that the goings-on within the three-pound human brain are what enabled us to figure out our place in the universe. Allow me to suggest that it's the professor, not I, who has misread nature. His ego was unjustifiably big to begin with, 
inflated by delusions of significance and fed by cultural assumptions that human beings are more important than everything else in the universe. In all fairness to the fellow, powerful forces in society leave most of us susceptible, as was I, until the day I learned in biology class that more bacteria live and work in one centimeter of my colon than the number of people who have ever existed in the world. That kind of information makes you think twice about who or what is actually in charge. From that day on, I began to think of people not as masters of space and time, but as participants in a great cosmic chain of being, with a direct genetic link across species, both living and extinct, extending back nearly four billion years to the earliest single-celled organisms on Earth. I know what you're thinking. We're smarter than bacteria. No doubt about it, we're smarter than every other living creature that ever ran, crawled, or slithered on Earth. But how smart is that? We cook our food. We compose poetry and music. We do art and science. We're good at math. Even if you're bad at math, you're probably much better at it than the smartest chimpanzee, whose genetic identity varies in only trifling ways from ours. Try as they might. Primatologists will never get a chimpanzee to do long division or trigonometry. If small genetic differences between us and our fellow apes account for what appears to be a vast difference in intelligence, then maybe that difference in intelligence is not so vast after all. Imagine a life form whose brain power is to ours as ours is to a chimpanzee's. To such a species, our highest mental achievements would be trivial. Their toddlers, instead of learning their ABCs on Sesame Street, would learn multivariable calculus on Boolean Boulevard. Our most complex theorems, our deepest philosophies, the cherished works of our most creative artists, would be projects their school kids brought home for mom and dad to display on the refrigerator door with a magnet. These creatures would study Stephen Hawking, who occupies the same endowed professorship once held by Isaac Newton at the University of Cambridge, because he's slightly more clever than other humans. Why? He can do theoretical astrophysics and other rudimentary calculations in his head, like their little Timmy, who just came home from alien preschool. If a huge genetic gap separated us from our closest relative in the animal kingdom, we could justifiably celebrate our brilliance— we might be entitled to walk around thinking we're distant and distinct from our fellow creatures. But no such gap exists. Instead, we are one with the rest of nature, fitting neither above nor below, but within. Need more ego softeners? Simple comparisons of quantity, size, and scale do the job well. Take water. It's common and vital. There are more molecules of water in an eight-ounce cup of the stuff than there are cups of water in all the world's oceans. Every cup that passes through a single person and eventually rejoins the world's water supply holds enough molecules to mix 1,500 of them into every other cup of water in the world. No way around it. Some of the water you just drank passed through the kidneys of Socrates, Genghis Khan, Joan of Arc. How about air? Also vital. A single breathful draws in more air molecules than there are breathfuls of air in Earth's entire atmosphere. That means some of the air you just breathed passed through the lungs of Napoleon, Beethoven, Lincoln, and Billy the Kid. Time to get cosmic. There are more stars in the universe than grains of sand on any beach. More stars than seconds have passed since Earth formed. More stars than words and sounds ever uttered by all the humans who ever lived. Want a sweeping view of the past? Our unfolding cosmic perspective takes you there. Light takes time to reach Earth's observatories from the depths of space, and so you see objects and phenomena not as they are, but as they once were, back almost to the beginning of time itself. Within that horizon of reckoning, cosmic evolution unfolds continuously in full view. Want to know what we're made of? 
Again, the cosmic perspective offers a bigger answer than you might expect. The chemical elements of the universe are forged in the fires of high-mass stars that end their lives in titanic explosions, enriching their host galaxies with the chemical arsenal of life as we know it. The result? The four most common chemically active elements in the universe, hydrogen, oxygen, carbon, and nitrogen, are the four most common elements of life on Earth with carbon serving as the foundation of biochemistry. We do not simply live in this universe. The universe lives within us. That being said, we may not even be of this Earth. Several separate lines of research, when considered together, have forced investigators to reassess who we think we are and where we think we came from. As we've already seen, when a large asteroid strikes a planet, the surrounding areas can recoil from the impact energy, catapulting rocks into space. From there, they can travel to and land on other planetary surfaces. Second, microorganisms can be hardy. Extremophiles on Earth can survive wide range of temperature, pressure, and radiation encountered during space travel. If the rocky ejecta from an impact hails from a planet with life, then microscopic fauna could have stowed away in the rock's nooks and crannies. Third, recent evidence suggests that shortly after the formation of our solar system, Mars was wet and perhaps fertile, even before Earth was. Collectively, these findings tell us it's conceivable that life began on Mars and later seeded life on Earth, a process known as panspermia. So all Earthlings might just might be descendants of Martians. Again and again, across the centuries, cosmic discoveries have demoted our self-image. Earth was once assumed to be astronomically unique, until astronomers learned that Earth is just another planet orbiting the Sun. Then we presumed the Sun was unique, until we learned that the countless stars of the night sky are suns themselves. Then we presumed our galaxy, the Milky Way, was the entire known universe, until we established that the countless fuzzy things in the sky are other galaxies dotting the landscape of our known universe. Today, how easy it is to presume that one universe is all there is. Yet, emerging theories of modern cosmology, as well as the continually reaffirmed improbability that anything is unique— require that we remain open to the latest assault on our plea for distinctiveness, the multiverse. The cosmic perspective flows from fundamental knowledge, but it's more than about what you know. It's also about having the wisdom and insight to apply that knowledge to assessing our place in the universe. And its attributes are clear. The cosmic perspective comes from the frontiers of science, yet it is not solely the provenance of the scientist. It belongs to everyone. The cosmic perspective is humble. The cosmic perspective is spiritual, even redemptive, but not religious. The cosmic perspective enables us to grasp in the same thought the large and the small. The cosmic perspective opens our minds to extraordinary ideas, but does not leave them so open that our brains spill out, making us susceptible to believing anything we're told. The cosmic perspective opens our eyes to the universe, not as a benevolent cradle designed to nurture life, but as a cold, lonely, hazardous place, forcing us to reassess the value of all humans to one another. The cosmic perspective shows Earth to be a moat, but it's a precious moat, and for the moment, it's the only home we have. The cosmic perspective finds beauty in the images of planets, moons, stars, and nebulae, but also celebrates the laws of physics that shape them. The cosmic perspective enables us to see beyond our circumstances, allowing us to transcend the primal search for food, shelter, and a mate. The cosmic perspective reminds us that in space where there is no air, a flag will not wave, an indication that perhaps flag-waving and space exploration do not mix. 
The cosmic perspective not only embraces our genetic kinship with all life on Earth, but also values our chemical kinship with any yet-to-be-discovered life in the universe, as well as our atomic kinship with the universe itself. At least once a week, if not once a day, we might each ponder what cosmic truths lie undiscovered before us, perhaps awaiting the arrival of a clever thinker, an ingenious experiment, or an innovative space mission to reveal them. We might further ponder how those discoveries may one day transform life on Earth. Absent such curiosity, we are no different from the provincial farmer who expresses no need to venture beyond the county line because his 40 acres meet all his needs. Yet if all our predecessors had felt that way, the farmer would instead be a cave dweller chasing down his dinner with a stick and a rock. During our brief stay on planet Earth, we owe ourselves and our descendants the opportunity to explore, in part because it's fun to do, but there's a far nobler reason. The day our knowledge of the cosmos ceases to expand, we risk regressing to the childish view that the universe figuratively and literally revolves around us. In that bleak world, arms-bearing, resource-hungry people and nations would be prone to act on their low-contracted prejudices. And that would be the last gasp of human enlightenment. Until the rise of a visionary new culture that could once again embrace, rather than fear, the cosmic perspective. Acknowledgements. My tireless literary editors over the years these essays were written included Ellen Goldenson and Avis Lang at Natural History Magazine, both of whom ensured that at all times I said what I meant and meant what I said. My scientific editor was friend and Princeton colleague Robert Lupton, who knew more than I did in all places where it mattered most. I also thank Betsy Lerner for suggestions to the manuscript that greatly improved its arc of content. This concludes the reading of Astrophysics for People in a Hurry by Neil deGrasse Tyson. Copyright 2017 by Neil deGrasse Tyson. This book was read by Neil deGrasse Tyson. This unabridged recording was published by arrangement with W.W. W. Norton and Company, Incorporated, and was produced in 2017 by Blackstone Audio, Inc., which holds the copyright. Neither this recording nor any portion of it may be reproduced or used for any purpose without prior written authorization from Blackstone Audio, Inc. If you would like to obtain a monthly update telling you about new releases, call 1-800-SAY-BOOK. That's 1-800-729-2665. For a complete listing of our titles, visit our website at www.downpour.com. Thank you.